Hi, I'm Bob Sewell. I'm a lawyer. In fact, I'm a partner at the law firm of Davis Miles McGuire Gardner. I started this podcast because my clients always ask me, is that even legal? I want to discuss on this podcast how the law affects us and changes our daily lives. I hope you enjoy the show. I hope it is meaningful to you, and I hope you learn from it. Thank you. Thank you for coming out to the show. We're glad to have you here. Today's guest is Rob Elman. Rob is the former Arizona Solicitor General. He's a formal general counsel for the Arizona House of Representatives. He's also a former appellate chief with the U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of Nevada. He is a very credentialed uh, attorney, and I'm super glad he was willing to come on the show today and talk about what's legal with regard to executive orders and the quarantine. Now, I want to emphasize from the very beginning that this show is general legal information. We're not politicians on the show. We don't argue for an agenda. We just talk about what's legal. If you need specific legal advice, you should seek out your own attorney. And I also need to warn you, at the end of this show, if you think you need to violate an executive order, don't do it. <laughs> don't do it. You should, you, you should seek out an attorney before you make any crazy decision like that. Now, as we begin, I want to tell the story and why you're here and what got me thinking about having you on the show, Rob, was the story of Typhoid Mary. Not, you don't have, now, there's nothing about you that reminds me of typhoid, but when we think of quarantines, in our mind as Americans is Typhoid Mary. Now, her story is interesting. She immigrated to the United States in, back in 1883, and she worked as a domestic cook. In 1907, through some research into some typhoid cases that arose, this researcher learned that the seven, the seven families that had typhoid some of the members some of the members died in the families they all shared one thing in common and that was mary malam who later became known as typhoid mary and she as they did the research they realized that she was an asymptomatic carrier of the disease and this is problematic right because she's not experiencing symptoms but she's carrying the disease Eventually, through some legal proceedings, she was quarantined and she stayed there for approximately two and a half years. And she ended up becoming obviously upset by this. She challenged the, uh, the process through the courts and through negotiation, she was eventually able to end her quarantine so long as she promised not to work as a domestic cook again. Well, she had no intention of keeping that agreement and she began to work as a domestic cook and lo and behold, 25 people were infected and two people died and she went right back into quarantine and there she stayed. In fact, they put her on North Brother Island in New York and she stayed there until she had a stroke and then she was later put into a hospital and then she later passed away. 
but that's the story of typhoid Mary. And that's what we normally think of when it comes to quarantine, taking a sick person and putting that person away from the rest of society. You know, we think of also you know, a, a ship. A ship has a bunch of sick, sick people on it. We take the ship, we quarantine the ship until we figure out what to do with the sick people. Or, you know, the astronauts, they come back from space. We're worried about some weird space disease they might get. So we quarantined the astronauts until we knew that they were safe to re-enter society. But this one seems a little different. This quarantine that we've been experiencing, it's a little bit different. One, we're not all totally isolated. We do have some societal contact, but we're taking healthy people and we're restricting them. And that's what I want to ask you. Is that even legal? Well, as always, Bob, with any interesting legal question, the answer is it depends. But in this case, I'm going to say that it is even legal because generally speaking, police powers, which are legitimate exercises of lawmaking authority, depend on uh, you know, whether something that you're compelling people to do is reasonably necessary to protect the health and safety. And uh, by and large, the executive orders we're looking at across the country right now do meet those criteria. And it, the way you posed it, sort of turning quarantine on its head where you're regulating healthy people rather than sick people, came up just two days ago in a Michigan lawsuit. And it, it, it really echoed what you just said. I'm even gonna quote from it. It says, uh, for the first time in our state's history, indeed in our nation's history, the state government is mass quarantining healthy people instead of the sick, end quote. So that's precisely the point that you made and that is now pending as the central issue in a Michigan case. Um, However, I would say that there is precedent for what's going on right now, because when you look at the Spanish flu pandemic in 1918, uh, there were municipalities in the United States that were certainly regulating the movements and activities of healthy people. Um, St. Louis, which these days is credited with doing a great job on controlling uh, the pandemic, banned, uh, they, they closed the schools, they banned uh, attending theaters, they banned public meetings, they even banned pool halls, so you know they were pretty serious about it. Yeah, they, we cannot do that. We cannot ban pool halls. They would never have done that in Indiana. So. <laughs> Absolutely. So there is precedent for that because those were certainly healthy people being affected by those regulations. Um, probably not to the extent you're seeing here, and of course they didn't have the science that we have now either. Um, but isolation and quarantine are legitimate police powers. Um, and as such, they're generally reserved to the states. So that's why the people listening to your podcast are being affected much more by executive orders or municipal ordinances uh, than they are by federal executive orders, although both are in effect right now. Um, me so the government can separate you. Let me take you a little bit further down this road. So what exactly is the construct? So you, you, mentioned, you mentioned some things. When a state wants to engage in uh, 
a quarantine or isolation. And it is a state, right? The states are the ones who typically do this, right? Correct. And why is it the state? Okay, well, well, you have really two constitutional constructs to keep in mind that I think will help your listeners sort all of this out and put it into a framework. The, the first is federal versus state powers. The second is legislative versus executive. But federal and state is what you're touching on right now. Health and safety concerns are generally police powers, and police powers are generally reserved to the states under the 10th Amendment. So that's why you're seeing restrictions at the local and state level. It's because federal powers aren't presumed. They have to be specified in the Constitution. So in order for the president or the Congress to do anything, they have to have a nexus to Article I or Article II of the Constitution. Okay. So once then the state decides they want to act and, or they need to act, what do they have to do to make sure that they're action, and, and it typically is the governor creating an, an executive order. What does the governor need to do to make sure that that order is constitutional? Well, really two steps. Uh, first, uh, the governor, like the president, is the executive. So uh, if they're going to be making law in the form of an order, they need a delegation of authority from their state legislature, if their constitution is similar to the federal one. So the analog, for example, when the president declared an emergency and uh, issued health-related orders back on March 13th, he was specifically citing a statute because the statute gave him the authority to declare an emergency and to take actions that otherwise Congress would normally take. And that is typical. There's a long tradition of that. Uh, Congress recognizes that in an emergency, you want to give the executive this kind of power. So that's the first step. And every state has a statute or statutes that permit a governor to do that under criteria. So the criterion here is a public health emergency. So that's the first part. So Congress or a state legislature can't delegate any more authority to the governor than they have in the first place. So it all boils down to the same legal test, okay? is what you're doing in your executive order, like Congress or the legislature would do in a, in a statute, is it reasonably related to a legitimate government interest? And then if it touches on a fundamental right, uh, religion, travel, some First Amendment right, is there a compelling state interest? And then if there is, the test changes a little. It's You don't need, uh, merely a legitimate state interest, you actually have to show a compelling state interest and you have to show that the terms of your order are narrowly tailored to achieve that objective. All right, so that's what I wanna to get to. We have a two-step test. We have this rational relationship test and we have this compelling government interest test. Is that correct? That's correct. So if you have a, a national emergency, then you're in compelling state interest territory there. Okay, so that's one of the things that I hear a lot of people talking about out there, and that is we have, people are saying we have our constitutional right. We can assemble, we can protest, we can have freedom of religion, and for most people, freedom of religion means 
meeting in large groups to engage in some sort of worship in your synagogue, in your church, in your temple, whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. And those things necessarily compete then with those police powers. Am I right? They do. They butt heads all the time, even in non-emergencies. So we have over 200 years of Supreme Court case law exploring this at this point. And there's certainly a recognition that some powers are necessary, even when they do butt up against what we call fundamental rights. Certainly. Okay. Now you mentioned that it has to be narrowly tailored. How do they make sure that is the governors of the land, how do they make sure that their executive order is narrowly tailored? Well, uh, I guess we have to go back to the two steps. If an executive order uh, infringes significantly on a fundamental right, so you know, let's say, uh, for example, that uh, you know, it, it prevents you from attending a church service, you know, your First Amendment right to exercise, uh, then it would have to be narrowly tailored to meet the compelling interest. So, for example, we have a case in Mississippi pending right now that touches on this very issue. There's an ordinance, not an ordinance, excuse me, there's an executive order passed in response to the coronavirus that prevented people from meeting in mass. And I don't mean a Catholic mass, I mean meeting in large groups. And uh, a church in uh, Greenville, Mississippi, uh, enforced the order in a way that fined people who went to church. Now, they didn't just go to church in the sense that you normally think of where they're inside of a building and they're sitting next to each other. This was a drive-in service, and they were listening to their pastor on the radio. Okay. Now, the, the, the executive order prohibited that, but it didn't prohibit a drive-in restaurant down the street. That was considered an essential business under that particular order. So it was such, I think it was such a flagrant violation of the right that you're talking about and it was not narrowly tailored. It was obvious enough that the, that the Department of Justice actually filed a statement of interest in that case. That is not narrowly tailored because you don't have to do what you did in order to stop the spread of the disease, okay? Right, I wanna talk about that a little bit more. So in my mind, if a governor and, and hopefully you'll comment on this. If a governor wants to make sure it's narrowly tailored, the first thing this governor must do is look to science. They have to say, what must we do to prevent the infection from spreading and what can we legitimately do? What if they don't have the science to back them up? In that case, we had, we had a, what looked like, you know, lack of a better word, hypocrisy. We had a, a drive-in church service where people were clearly segregated from each other and versus a drive-in uh, restaurant. How does this, the governor start with science and make sure it stays with science? 
if that governor had started and stayed with science, they would, uh, that governor would not have signed that executive order in the form that it was in. Um, and you know, there's an enforcement issue there too. Um, but that is an essential component of the cases that are starting to bubble, in, bubble up right now that challenge these executive orders. There's a case in Michigan right now, was the, the one I talked about earlier, that was filed on Tuesday. And uh, they're challenging the lack of scientific basis, the alleged lack in that case. So they're saying things uh, uh, that the modeling that the governor relied on for spread of the virus was speculative. Uh, the infectiousness that this was uh, supposed to prevent wasn't tied to the actions that were prohibited. Um, they also alleged that the number of deaths caused by COVID-19, while tragic, was not unprecedented. And they made that point because prior emergency orders in the history of Michigan never went as far as they went to tie up the, the movements and actions of healthy people. So if they can prove those claims and they can say that the uh, executive order was not reasonably related to the science behind the compelling interest, they're probably gonna win that case. And they'll get a declaration from the court that that executive order is unlawful. Hmm. Is, I have two questions. The first one is, and maybe we'll start with the first one, do you look backwards at the science at the time that what we know now? So if five months from now we happen to be in quarantine, which I hope and I don't think we will be, but I hope that's I'm right. If five months from now we look back and we say, no, this quarantine wasn't necessary because we now know five months later X about the virus. is is the science backwards looking or is it what you know at the time or what you believe or what you've been informed of? How does that work? Yeah, it's certainly what you know at the time. Uh, an executive order that might be valid today because it's based on the uh, best cumulative knowledge of science. Uh, for example, uh, scientists right now believe that this COVID-19 virus is airborne um, if it, and there's really good proof of that, by the way, but if it turns out that it isn't, and it's only transmitted in some way that we're not thinking of, and you find that out five months from now, the order, uh, that is valid today will become invalid. So it definitely tracks knowledge as we go forward. Hmm. My, my next question is, if I believe the executive order has wrongly affected me. I've been wrongly denied my constitutional right of assembly, of religion, of speech, whatever it may be. How do I actually seek a remedy? What does the good citizen do to get a remedy? Okay, the good citizen does what the plaintiffs in the state cases I've been referring to does. They can file suit in a state or federal court and seek injunctive or declaratory relief. So the declaratory relief I alluded to earlier, that's a statement from the court that the order's invalid. The injunctive relief prohibits uh, the state from enforcing that rule. So if, if the people in Greenville, Mississippi successfully uh, challenge the $500 fines 
that were levied for att attending church in a car parking lot, um, then uh, they're going to have a remedy there, okay? <laughs> okay. What, what is the right balance a executive needs to take between balancing the rights of the individuals and the rights of, or the rights of the group and through that executive authority? What do they have to do to make that balance? That's a, a, a great question and the cases turn on that because you, you always balance the infringement against the necessity. So that's why you see, you know, the, the scrutiny of the court increasing and getting, getting uh, more and more intense, the more compelling the state's interest is. Um, so if you have a, uh, you know, a, a typical city ordinance, let's say that controls zoning or something, you have time, place and manner restrictions that, that, uh, you know, control whether something's valid or not. So you have the right to travel, but you don't have the right to drive down a city street at 75 miles per hour, okay? And right. you have the right of free speech, but you don't have the right to blare your speech on a megaphone at 2 a.m. So <laughs> it's, it's things like that. So, uh, so you have to have an ability, you have to have a forum to speak but it doesn't have necessarily have to be the one that you prefer. Hmm. So here, for example, you have uh, restrictions on travel. And there's a case in uh, Florida that challenged closure of beaches. Okay, some beaches are actually private property in Florida. So you have a right to go to the beach, you have a right to travel, but you don't have the right necessarily to be at the beach 24 hours a day under uh, under all circumstances. There are plenty of uh, health and safety reasons why you would want to regulate access to a beach. You, know, you can't have 2,000 people on a small beach, that's dangerous. You know, you can't have people swimming out past the safety buoys because that's dangerous. So you have the right to travel, but it's always cabined by reason. And the more dangerous the situation is, the more latitude a government has in regulating it. I mean, the courts really, uh, really struck a balance here and they pursue exactly what you just referred to. They're always measuring one thing against the other. These are really challenging issues. And I think they're so challenging because this isn't the hypothetical for many people. This is the real deal. You know, I have friends, I have family who have been adversely affected by these regulations, and I'm certain you have too. And those people listening, they may have been adversely affected too. Even if they agree with what the governors had done, it hurts, right? This is real people law and real consequences. You know, I do think that the average person recognizes the seriousness of the disease and the reason I think that is because I see a lack of dissent, really, among the populace. What do you think? Uh, I think you're right. And I think what it tells us is that the, the legal tests that have evolved over the last 200 plus years 
are probably very practical tests. And they, they have been tested in times of emergency as well. Um, we also have the opportunity to look back at uh, executive orders that were issued during times of emergency and they're not always good. Um, some of the most shameful things we've done have been in the name of emergencies. You know, we, we have the Korematsu case and you know, we have the all kinds of controversial things that were done in the name of emergencies. But what you're seeing today, I agree with you, is a lack of dissent. And I don't think that derives from people thinking that they have no power, there's nothing they can do about it. But rather, I think it's a reflection of governors uh, and the president taking actions that they have properly been advised are going to be within the law for the most part. Uh, we <laughs> about a couple of exceptions to that. And, and when that happens, it means they have struck the correct balance. So the legal test reflects something that's really very pragmatic and people recognize that. Nobody's happy and a lot of people are, are hurting in ways they've never hurt before. I mean, our, our government's doing some drastic things, but uh, what they are doing by and large is reasonably calculated to control a potentially fatal problem. So people are tolerating it. Now that doesn't mean there haven't been hundreds of lawsuits, but most of them are not against the government. They're contract issues. You know, do I get my money back because I can't vacation here anymore? That kind of thing. Hmm. Rob Elman, thank you for coming out to the show. It's been really helpful. Your information has been stellar and you're obviously very skilled at what you do. So thank you for coming out. Thanks, Bob. It was fun. I appreciate it.